First Peter, chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. It is a joy to be here gathered with your people, singing your praises, preaching your word, and hearing your word preached. Lord, thank you so much for this sunshine. You know I love it. It is a gift of your grace. Um, Father, I just pray this morning that you would use me for your glory, use all of us for your glory. Lord, I pray that you'd help me worship through this sermon and help your people worship as they listen to this sermon. Thank you so much, Lord, for the grace you've shown us in Christ Jesus, for the example he's been to us, how his his grace towards us has enabled us to follow his example by suffering under unjust treatment. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd come now and, and preach a better sermon than I ever could. I pray this in your name, Jesus, King, Lord, Treasure, Savior. Amen. You may be seated. So right before I started this internship, for the last year, all, pretty much all of 2019, I was working in construction. Um, it was a really hard, hard year. For those of you who maybe have heard my story, Audrey and I last year were coming on the other side of a very difficult year, having to, to step down from ministry from another church, and a friend offered me a job framing houses. Well, he didn't totally offer me a job. He said, I think my dad and uncle would hire you if you want to come frame houses with me. And I was like, sure, I'll try it. I need a job. I need to provide for my family. And so my job interview, I go to this job site, and the boss is there, real quiet man. He just, he looks at me and he says, do you have any experience in construction? And I said, zero, sir. What I didn't tell him was like, I didn't even know how to read a tape measure. <laughs> they kind of judged my dad when I said that. Love my dad. We golf and fish together. We didn't do home improvement Project, so I just never learned how to use tools. And I was pretty open with him. I have no experience, sir. And then he said, do you want to make a career out of this? And I said, no, sir, I just want a job. And he hired me anyway. <laughs> and he shouldn't have. Because it was, he was really hard on me, you guys. He was really, I, guess, I didn't know this, but construction is just like full of rough and gruff men. And if you know me, I'm not one of those, unashamedly. 
Uh, I cry. I love um, rom-coms. I'm passionate. I just, it's not track athlete. <laughs> That's why I love this place. That's what the intern gets. <laughs> so I remember, we're laughing at my pain. I remember coming home many times after my job in construction crying. And I remember specifically one Friday, I came home crying so hard, Audrey had to like put the babies down and hold me. Like I, I couldn't breathe, I was crying so hard. I had just been like literally bullied all day. This man was so hard. I, was, I, I genuinely felt like I was suffering under unjust treatment. And so obviously, great illustration to start this text. Uh, the reality is we're all prone to suffer under unjust treatment, even sometimes for doing good. And we all have a sinful reaction to revile and threaten when we suffer. I wonder how many of you have had or have right now really hard bosses. I wish I would have studied this text the way I have in the last two weeks a year ago. I don't think I totally failed my test last year, but th this text really speaks into how we are to live when we're experiencing this. It's a great and it's a challenging text. It's great because obviously it's God's Word. This is food for our souls. This is going to teach us how to live in a sinful and fallen world. Um, also, because we're going to see the explicit gospel in this text, I cannot wait. When I was a younger preacher, I used to get insecure about preaching the gospel because I had this wrong idea that the gospel was only for unbelievers. But this church and a book we're reading right now in PLI has really given me a bigger view that the gospel doesn't just make disciples, it matures disciples. The gospel is for us every day. We need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. And I love this church because we hear the gospel every Sunday from our pastors. Uh, this is also a challenging text, though, because God calls us to suffer and to submit, and none of us like those words, suffer and submit. Uh, and not just to suffer, but to endure suffering under unjust authority. This is so countercultural, right? Especially for my generation, the millennials. We're not the first generation to buck against authority, but boy, do we buck hard. My generation is protesting everything. They're protesting if they don't have a safe space. It's crazy. The rhetoric coming out of our culture and my generation is that all authority is bad, even if it's good. And here we have God telling us through Peter that even when it's bad and unjust, we're called to submit. What God is saying to us in this text is that because of Christ's atoning work on the cross, Christians are enabled to follow His example by submitting to unjust suffering, unjust authority. So the flow of the... The passage breaks down into three parts. I know most sermons are three parts. I think God just made it that way to keep it easy for us preachers. The first is the duty to submit, verses 18 through 20. And then we'll see Christ's example of submission, verses 21 through 23. And then the power to submit, verses 24 and 25. So let's look at our first call, the duty to submit. It starts with the word servants or some translations, slaves. I wrestled with how much to cover this first word in the social institution of servants and slavery. There was a tendency to say way more than I need to because this passage is pregnant with meaning and would, I'd be preaching for longer than Matt Whitney, which would be amazing if I did that. <laughs> Love you, Matt, wherever you are. Thank you. So I'm not going to be exhaustive, but I, I'll address it because it's there. Um, I'll point you, though, 
I was encouraged to listen to one of Rich's sermons from two years ago, 2018. If you go on our website, thecrossingfc.org, and you look under resources and you find sermons, you can find Rich preached a sermon from the book of Colossians. His text was uh, chapter 3, 22 through 4, 1, and he does a great job of covering this topic more exhaustively than I am. It was really good. I listened to the whole thing. Rich, it was awesome. Thank you. Um, so a lot of us, though, when we hear the word slaves or servants, uh, as Americans, we think of the North American slave trade of the 17th and 18th centuries, and we freak out. Everybody loses their minds, as the Joker says in Batman. North, the North American slave trade, as I studied, there was this doctoral candidate studied for a long time. He just said, we need to understand two things. The North American slave trade was based on permanence, and it was based on race, racism culturalism, if that's a word. You guys know the story. You've seen the movies. They went to Africa. They stole human beings. They put them in slavery for life. If you didn't own them for life, you could sell them. They were still in slavery for life, and it was solely based on race and culture. Ancient Near Eastern slavery, had, they had various means to earn their freedom. It was not based on racism or culture alone. If it was a Hebrew slave, they enjoyed periodic jubilees in which they were freed. And they weren't always manual laborers, but could even be doctors and teachers. Sometimes they were hired or sold themselves into slavery. Sometimes they were bought, that's a reality, or born into slavery or taken in wars. In ancient times, instead of killing someone, they would take them in slavery, and they considered that more humane. Now, that said, I'm going to take my legs out from underneath me. Because just because ancient Near Eastern slavery wasn't the same as the North American slave trade, God still doesn't condone ancient Near Eastern slavery. 1 Timothy 1.10 says, God says that being an enslaver is contrary to sound doctrine. And the definition of enslaver is those who take someone captive in order to sell them into slavery. That's contrary to sound doctrine. So my basic understanding of the Bible is that God is always teaching us how the gospel enables us to live in a fallen and sinful world. Just because he's addressing it here does not mean he's condoning it. He's teaching us how to live this life. One of my old pastors blew my mind when I was a young Christian. He was kind of referring to Paul when he was in prison, but we could apply it to slavery. A Christian who is in jail or slavery is more free than an unbeliever who isn't. One commentator says, the honor of a spiritual royalty may be concealed on the, under the dull ordinariness of a servant. God has given us the thing that we need the most, spiritual salvation and spiritual freedom. He might not be as concerned with giving us economic or political freedom. He's going to teach us how to live under those sinful institutions, but he's given us salvation. So does this apply to us then? Because it says servants, slaves, yes. Because as I said earlier, all of us at one point or another will suffer under submission to unjust authority. We will suffer for and while doing good. We're all prone to react to this suffering with reviling and with threatening. Also, because the slave-master relationship was by far the most common employer-employee relationship in the ancient world. And because this passage is an application of a broader principle, which we're going to see, we've seen at the beginning of this book, we're going to see throughout this book. Um, and, and Daniel and I believe it's the main point of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 4, 19, you can flip your Bible one page if you want to look at that. Chapter 4, verse 19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
We see the principle right there, and it's applied in this employer-employee relationship. Also, if you look at chapter 3, verse 14, it says this, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And then chapter 3, verse 17 says this, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So it does apply to us. The duty is for Christians to submit to their employers, or we could even say, I think, teachers or coaches. People in authority over you. The term submit, as Aaron told us last week, is a military term. It means to subordinate, to yield to, to obey. And the nature of this submission is, as he says, with all respect. Or some translations, fear. The Greek word there is fear. I believe this means two things. Primarily one, it's the second thing I'm going to say, but first I think it does mean that we should respect our employer. All respect. Did you catch that word? All, it's there. So I think it's not just a lip service obedience and then nonstop grumbling. The Bible says to do everything without grumbling. Or gossiping or slandering to coworkers. When I was in construction last year, I think I failed that test but with a genuine desire to respect them out of fear of God. That's what I think it primarily means. Because look at chapter 2, verse 13 that Aaron preached last week. It's the beginning of this submission to authority chunk that we see from 2.13 through 3.7. 2.13 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That applies to the text I'm preaching right now and to Daniel's text next week that he's preaching. We're to do it for the Lord's sake. This is a desire to honor God with our obedience by submitting to our employer. And it's not just to the good and gentle. That's easy. That doesn't take a miracle. It takes a miracle of God to submit even to the unjust. John Piper says about this passage and other passages that the gospel is not just about, or the, the commands of Scripture aren't just duties to obey, they're miracles to experience. It takes a miracle to be able to submit to unjust suffering. The word unjust there, it's a fun Greek word, is scolios. Does that sound familiar? It's where we get our medical term scoliosis, curvature of the back. It means curved or bent. Used of a person, it means crooked, perverse, and unfair. This employer is rude, self-seeking, unrighteous, domineering, to name a few. But this begs the question for us, does our submission reach a limit? Hopefully, it's obvious, but the answer is yes. Anytime an employer or anyone over authority commands us to sin or disobey God in any way, we are not supposed to obey them. We see many of examples of this in Scripture. One is when the apostles are preaching the gospel. They get thrown in prison. They get beaten and they're told, they get released and they're told, don't preach Jesus anymore. And what do they say? Heck no. We're going to obey God. We're not going to obey you. But also, I don't think God is telling us we have to stay in a job forever. If so, I'm sinning because Audrey and I have been encouraging a friend to leave a job that he's been in for three years that he's miserable in. I don't believe that we're not allowed to pray and ask God to leave a job where we have a tough boss. Ask Him to remove our suffering, remove the cup that is before us. But as long as we're in a job, we're called to submit and respect our employer in the fear of God while doing good. 
So what else is in the nature of this submission? Let's look at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It is a gracious thing. What does that mean? Something that finds favor with God. That which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness. It's thankworthy. It's commendable. God is pleased with you. We have to be careful though. It's not an earning thing. I understand this the best since being a parent. Those of you who aren't parents in here, you can't empathize, but I'm sure you will be able to sympathize. I'm going to talk about my son, even though I have two kids. Callie's only nine months, so she's not disobeying quite yet. But Zeke, my three-nager, is disobeying a lot. Um, If we say no less than 50 times a day, it's a victory. But, But Ezekiel Robert Barlow is my son. He's my precious son. He's my lion heart. He's my chicken chunk. He's my, he's my little buddy. I mean, I could tell you all the nicknames. I adore my son. You parents know this. And when he disobeys, he, he doesn't become less of my son. I still love him. I still adore him. But my heart gets sad and my face is frowned. I'm upset. And when he obeys, especially when he obeys on the first time, my heart is happy and I have a smile on my face. It is the same way with God. Through faith in Christ, we are His sons and daughters. But when we obey, when we submit to unjust authority, we put a smile on His face. It makes Him happy. It's thankworthy. It's commendable. It goes on to say, when mindful of God. That's huge, you guys. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Mindful means conscious of God. When we experience trials, the trial of suffering unjustly, with a heart and mind posture of trusting God, His sovereignty, His providence, asking for wisdom, as James tells us, and believing one of our favorite verses, Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Believing that what God is doing in and through us is way, way more important than the circumstance that is happening to us. Believing that He will right all the wrongs. Church, we have to know, we have to remember, we have to acknowledge the One who is our true shepherd and overseer. So we bring God joy and pleasure and commendation when mindful of Him, we suffer unjustly. And Peter continues this argument in verse 20. Look at it with me. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. The first part is an obvious rhetorical question. You don't get any credit for suffering justly. Except in the gangster movies, we don't see anyone saying, you should honor me, credit me, respect me, because I've just endured some hard time. For what? Some horrible crime? That was just. You're not getting any credit for that. It's a really unique Greek word there that's only used like one other time in the Bible. And it just means like, give me credit for what I have done. There's no credit there. But if, the second half of that verse, a little bit is added to the nature of this submission, but if when you do good 
and suffer for it, you endure. So it's not a passive submission we're called to. It's not become a doormat. It's not don't do anything kind of submission. We're called to do good. We're called to holy and righteous living in every context in which we find ourselves. Seeking righteousness, justice, walking humbly, loving mercy, however that verse goes. And when we suffer in that way, for and while doing good, Peter repeats, you see it? It is a gracious thing in the sight of God. He's proud of you. He's happy with you. It is commendable to Him. It shows the grace that you have received that you're living in that grace. So church, that's our duty. That's the imperative. Our duty as Christians is to submit to our employers or teachers or coaches even when they're unjust out of mindfulness of God as we seek to do good. One commentator sums this up well though. The goal is not submission in and of itself. The goal is to be like the Savior, to follow in the footsteps of the Prince of Peace. And praise God, Jesus Christ is the perfect example of submission that we follow. So let's move on to verses 21 through 23. Christ's example of submission. Verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. As Christians, we have all been called to suffer, and to suffer unjustly as we submit to authority, because that is exactly what Christ our Savior did. This suffering should not surprise us, church. We're told and warned all over the Bible, everywhere. A couple examples would be Acts 14.22. As the apostles are preaching the gospel, it says they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Brandon reminded us on Friday night that we have to pick up our cross daily to follow Jesus. It's going to be hard. Since we're called to it, we should not run from it. This is hard for me. This is hard for us. But my personality type is so prone to love comfort, to run from suffering. I'm so bad at it. I want to get better at it. I hope you do too. The better we get at it, the more we're like Jesus. We are obligated to follow in His steps. So if we're running from suffering, we're running from Jesus. If we're running from suffering, we're running from the path that He set before us. This is why you're going to start hearing me, and we heard again on Brandon on Friday night, we cannot believe the prosperity gospel, church. We love you guys too much to let you believe that you come to Jesus for health and wealth. And that if you have a sickness, if you have enough faith, God wants to heal you. It's always His will. You should never suffer. Because Christ suffered, we should never have to. Rank heresy. I hate it. It's horrible. Pick up your cross. Suffer well. Your life's about His glory, not your comfort. This is for me too. And here's the crazy, profound thing about Christ's suffering and ours. Church, He didn't deserve any of it. Do you, do you meditate on that as often as you should? Listen to this. He didn't deserve any of it, and we deserve way more than we've ever received. 
My wife and I love Grace, but we're just still young-ish Christians, and, and she is still wrapping her mind around God's mercy. Not just the fact that we've been given something that we don't deserve, but that we haven't been given what we do deserve. Can you believe that? The suffering we have experienced is nothing compared to experiencing the wrath of God on a cross. And Jesus didn't deserve one iota, as the text says in verses 22 and 23. But really quick before I read them, most of you who are <clears throat> know your Bibles decent know that um, Peter is echoing and quoting from one of the most famous chapters in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 53, from 22 through the end of this chapter. Isaiah 53 is probably one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. It was written 700 years before Christ. If you're in here and you're not a Christian, I think this is one of the strongest arguments for the truthfulness of Christianity. That 700 years before Christ lived and died, this is going to explain exactly what happened to Christ and the manner in which He would endure it. This is the suffering servant Messiah of Isaiah 53. So I'm going to read Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9. You can turn there with me if you want, or you can just listen. And then I'm going to read our text 22 and 23 in the passage this morning. And listen to how Peter rightly attributes the identity of the suffering servant Messiah to Jesus. So Isaiah 53, 7 through 9 says this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now listen to 22 and 23 of 1 Peter chapter 2. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This isn't hyperbole. This is not exaggeration. Jesus never sinned. Completely sinless. He was and is the perfect spotless lamb. Only the sinless God-man could take the sins of the world. And we see his response to suffering. He didn't revile in return. He didn't threaten. Do you guys realize how amazing that is? I hope you will after I preach this. For sinful humans, I think the first reaction or one of the first reactions in our hearts to reviling or suffering is reviling in return or threatening. The Lord let me experience this just last week. I was playing hockey on a Friday. Smitty and I have become pretty good friends with all the hockey guys and have a lot of respect for one of these older guys. He wasn't in a position of authority over me. You can poke a hole in the illustration, but just throw me a bone. He's a police officer and he's older than me. He's a really nice guy. And I played well that day. I scored a lot of goals. I'm there to score some goals and have fun and meet guys. I'm, you know, you guys seem the real me, especially my life group. Like, I'm a nice guy, right? I think I'm just telling that to myself right now. <laughs> because after hockey, um, this guy, 
said some really, really mean things about me. I've ne- he's never been like that before. It was a rough day. Towards the end, I scored probably like eight goals in the last 10 minutes. But I wasn't trying to embarrass him. And, and he kind of went off on me in the locker room. He was like, all you're here for is to embarrass people. I think he questioned my salvation. He's a Christian too. And he questioned my call to pastoral ministry because of the way I played hockey. And I can tell you guys, I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart. And my first reaction was to revile in return. And by the grace of God, somehow I bit my tongue, maybe because I'm not that godly, but I don't like confrontation that much. I bit my tongue, but I saw in my heart, I want to revile you, man. Like, I want to tell you, dude, who are you? Like, I'm not a mean guy. I'm just out here to make some good passes, score some goals, make friendships. Bit my tongue. He was still sitting in his police car afterwards. I was like, he's going to tase me, but I'm going to go over there. <laughs> and I, was, I, I came in peace. Just, I'm, I'm serious, guys. Like, God's grace. I'm not trying to be the hero of this story. And I just say, I'm really sorry, man. Like, I'm not here to embarrass you. I just want to have fun like you. And it was really good, by God's grace. But, but like I said, the main point there is, is I was prone to, to revile, to, to threaten him. I think the underlying desire for us is self-protection. Someone reviles us, and we want to protect our ego. Someone causes us major suffering, and we want to protect our well-being. And the Son of God left heaven and came to earth, and not only did He not self-protect, He self-sacrificed. And He was able to do that because He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. This is a similar idea of being mindful of God. To entrust. To give into the hands of another. To deliver to one something to keep, use, take care of, or manage. Jesus gave Himself into the hands of the Father. He delivered Himself to God to be kept, to be used, to be taken care of, to be managed. But it wasn't just Himself. Himself, that word himself, isn't in the original Greek. It just says, but continued entrusting to him who judges justly. So I'm not saying it doesn't mean he entrusted himself. I'm just saying it means more. He entrusted his enemies to him who judges justly. He entrusted their motives to him who judges justly. He entrusted his own pain, sorrows, and emotions to him who judges justly. God is a righteous and just judge, and judgment belongs to Him. We know that because we've read the Bible. He's good. He's right. He's righteous. And Genesis 16 describes Him as the God who sees. That is a perfect illustration of this passage. Hagar gets kicked out. Get out of here under this unjust treatment. Go die of starvation and dehydration in the desert. And she leaves her little boy to die and walks away. And she says, I can't watch this. And God comes and says, look, I've provided an oasis. And she says, surely you are the God who sees. God God sees every mean thing your boss has ever said to you. Every mean thing, coworkers, teachers, coaches, every mean way they've treated you. Every time you've gone home and said, I feel worthless, God sees it. And he's a just judge. And someday he's going to right every wrong. Praise him for that. The example of Jesus isn't just to endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. It's to entrust ourselves, not only to the just judge, but as we'll see in a moment, to the shepherd 
and overseer of our souls. So as we follow his example, have you entrusted yourself to him? As you suffer unjust treatment at your job, have you entrusted your boss and his motives and his words and your pain and your suffering to him who judges justly? Do it this morning. Do it. Do I have time to say this? Yeah, real quick. Yep. As far as this example of Christ's suffering, it is an example. But I'm going I'm to get on your radar some more heresy. And I'm going to be pretty intense, so I hope I get grace. The liberal churches in America would agree with me and say, yes, Christ was an example. But he was only an example. There was no salvation in his death. There's no atonement. It is merely an, ex an example. We should follow him in that it, we should show self-sacrificial love to the world. But to say that God has holy wrath against sin, which I don't think they even really believe in sin or wrath, that he would require a punishment by the death of his son or eternity in hell for us, they call divine child abuse. Jesus' death was only an example. There are these churches all over our country. And it's wrong. And I hope that doesn't sound too much like a hobby horse. I think it's important as we exegete our culture and exegete God's Word and we read the context. Christ's death was an example, but not just an example. It was salvation. It was atonement. His death is nothing apart from this. And this leads us to the power to submit the Gospel. Verses 24 and 25. And again, Peter has in mind Isaiah 53. This time verses 4, 5, and 6. I'll read them quickly. Listen for the parallels as I read 1 Peter afterwards. 53 verses 4, 5, and 6. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Back to 1 Peter 2, verses 24 and 25. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus Christ took our sins on Himself on the cross. The nerdy theological term is penal substitutionary atonement. I'm not trying to impress you because I know that word. It is fun to say. But it just means Christ took our sins in His body. Penal means penalty, punishment. He substituted Himself for us under the wrath of God that we deserved and it provided an atonement, a salvation. Church, there's no gospel apart from this. There's no good news apart from this truth. If Christ didn't and hasn't taken our sins on Himself, there's no gospel, there's no good news, there's only wrath. That is all we have waiting for us apart from this. But He did and He has. And in doing so, He became a curse for us. That's what Peter is implying by using the word tree in verse 24. 
It's supposed to make us think back to Deuteronomy 21-23, which Paul quotes in Galatians 3.13. He says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. I just, this week, will you just meditate on the fact that our King and our Lord and our Savior became a curse for us? As if hanging on the cross, He heard the Father say, Cursed are you for the sins of all who would believe. Separation from the Father. I hope that stirs you to worship like it does me. Jesus took our sins. He became a curse for us so that, it says, we would die to sin and live to righteousness. His death on the cross has set us free from the penalty and power of sin, someday the presence of sin, and enabled us to live righteous lives. This applies to every act of obedience we are called to in the whole Bible. And specifically to this passage, His atoning work on the cross has enabled us to follow His example by submitting to unjust authority. Because by His wounds, we've been healed. By His suffering, we've been saved. We need this healing and we need this salvation. Because apart from Christ, we're all dead in our sins. We are dead in our sins apart from Christ. We were straying like sheep. We'd all left God, all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We'd all forsaken God. We'd all broken the great commandment. No human being except for Jesus has loved the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength perfectly all the time. None of us has. We must do that or place our faith in Christ because He's done it for us. But our great shepherd is in the business of restoring sheep to his fold. He has come to seek and save the lost. So, the crossing church, remember Jesus is your shepherd. The true overseer of your soul. Your boss, your teacher's Your coaches do not have more authority over you than the Lord Jesus Christ. They only have as much authority as God has given them. Jesus says to Pilate in John 19.11, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. So to those of you who are Christians in here, again I say trust your shepherd. Trust your overseer. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Submit to authority even when it's unjust out of a desire to honor and glorify God. Follow the example of Christ's submission to do good while enduring unjust treatment. Because it's only by His atoning work on the cross, He's enabled us to follow His example, to submit to this treatment. To those of you in here who might who aren't Christians, if you're visiting here with us and you're not a Christian, I don't call you to follow Christ's example yet. I don't call you to submit to unjust authority yet. I call you to believe the Gospel. To believe this good news that God loves sinners so much He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross. If you put your faith in Christ and repent of your sins, the Bible says you will be saved. You don't need to come talk to me afterwards. You don't need to talk to a pastor. You can. But all you have to do is call out to God. 
Say, I believe my sins were poured on Christ. Save me from my sins and God will save you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You so much, Lord, for this good news of the Gospel, for reminding our hearts of the Gospel this morning, for sending Your Son to pay for our sins, enabling us to follow His example, to not to revile and not to threaten when we're reviled and when we're suffering, Lord, but to submit. And as we do this, Lord, we, we desire to, to honor You, to glorify You, to do this out of love for You, Lord, to obey You. Lord, we do this to show the world that, that Your reign as King is good and it's righteous and it brings more joy than anything else. Lord, we acknowledge where we fall short. Help, help, Lord, help us have our first reaction to be mindful of You, to trust You, entrust ourselves and the entire situation to You. We love You, Lord. We praise You. Thank You for this time together, worshiping You and in Your Word this morning. I pray this in Your holy, precious name, Jesus. Amen.